one of the things that that I always tell people is the question is all is often will talking about suicide uh, cause a suicide and the answer to that is no uh, that won't happen there's a lot of good literature out there for the last 30 years that that uh, back supports that notion This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams coming to you from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Today's show, Bob, is sponsored by Clio and Landy Insurance. And I know you write some blogs. I do. I write a blog called Law Sites, another called Media Law and Legal Blog Watch for Law.com. Uh, well, today, Craig, we're going to be talking about two, I guess, two very different sides of, of the economy and the way it's having an impact uh, on the legal profession. And uh, first off, we're going to talk about a somewhat tragic side of this. Uh, there have been three reports in recent months of suicides at U.S. law firms, uh, and Many cite the economic downturn for the reasons behind these tragedies, uh, not to mention stress from client cutbacks, cuts in pay, and, and layoffs at the firms. Well, the question that we're asking is, what does the economy have to do with it? Are lawyers more prone to depression? And what should law firms be doing to prevent this from happening? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to explore what law firms can do to recognize the signs of depression uh, among their professionals. Later in the program, we're going to take a look at the long-term changes in the practice brought about by the current economic state we're in. And our guest today for our first segment is attorney Skip Simpson from the law offices Skip Simpson in Frisco, Texas. He has a legal background ranging from duties as a U.S. Air Force courts martial judge lawyer to services as Texas's top drug traffic prosecutor. Skip Simpson's created a private law practice covering a wide range of civil and criminal matters. His practice focuses on the psychiatric and psychological malpractice representing survivors of suicide to determine the causes, and he's nationally recognized for his experience and expertise in suicide and repressed memory cases. He was profiled in the Wall Street Journal in 1997 for his pioneering work in suicide litigation. Welcome to Lawyer Lawyer, Skip Simpson. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, why don't you let us, uh, let us in on what it's like to represent uh, a family that has survived a suicide. Well, it's never pleasant, ever. And uh, and I've been doing this for a long time, and every time I uh, hear a new case or accept a new case, it's, it uh, hits you just about as hard as it did the first time you ever have taken a case like that. So it's uh, it's it's one of those things, like any other case, where you then start uh, assessing the facts, looking at the standard of care, getting the medical records, and all those kinds of things. But I know that's not really what you all want to talk about as much as um, how to prevent suicide and the challenge it is to the legal profession. Well, let's talk more about that, Skip. Let's talk about, uh, you know, there have been uh, at least three cases that, that I've heard of that have made the news of, of lawyers 
committing suicide. You know, just generally speaking, before we get into some of the specifics, what's your impression about this? Well, my broad view is that ever American knows that on 9-11, approximately 3,000 Americans were killed by terrorists. And what most Americans don't know is that 10 times that many Americans kill themselves every single year, leaving hundreds of thousands of loved ones, colleagues, and friends to grieve. So the stats on it are for, in suicide in general, is that every day there's about 89 people that kill themselves in the United States, and that number usually comes up to somewhere around 33,000 at the end of the year. Now, how many of those approximately 32, 33,000 suicides in the United States each year are lawyers? And there's not a good number on that, but there's an estimate uh, that about since 9-11, an estimated 800 lawyers and law students have died by suicide. But there was a Canadian Bar Association study that was done that says that those numbers would be a lot higher. And uh, so if the ABA... Uh, members are like the Canadian bar members, the number of U.S. attorneys and law students who have died by suicide since 9-11 could exceed well over 5,000 people. Now, how a bad economy, uh, as you highlighted in the beginning, how a bad economy can have anything to do with that is the fact that uh, people uh, are losing their jobs. But just losing your job, obviously, isn't going to cause suicide. First of all, you have to have a major psychiatric disorder going on uh, before you have suicide. So before anyone will commit suicide, generally, uh, they have to have a major psychiatric disorder. Um, And and so that's that's where it starts. And uh, uh, we, as lawyers... The uh, Surgeon General's national national strategy for suicide prevention uh, said by 2005, what lawyers were charged to do is increase the proportion of divorce and family law and criminal defense attorneys who have received training in identifying and responding to persons at risk for suicide. And the idea behind that is is that uh, people who come in and see criminal defense lawyers and family law practitioners. Uh, generally have a whole lot of of stress going on. There's lots of reasons why you need to be paying attention to what they're saying about depression and drinking and those kinds of things. And in this age, in the in the uh, financial situation we're in right now, there are going to be a number of people who are losing their jobs um, that are coming in and having all kinds of stress, just like the lawyer him or herself have. And um, and so you have to be on alert for that because losing a job is a risk factor for suicide, uh, but it has to be coupled with also having a major psychiatric disorder and some other issues that go on also. Skip, how do you make a law practice out of uh, the issue of suicide? And and who are your clients and what are they coming to you for? Well, um, I inadvertently stepped into this, which kind of highlights my whole career in different areas that I've been in. Um, But the very first case I had was uh, I had been a in the Air Force. I was a uh, prosecutor doing a lot of uh, criminal work dealing with the insanity defense. And so my partners, once I got out of the Air Force, knew that I knew, had a good background in that area. And so they first asked me to uh, talk to a lady whose husband, an engineer, had suicided. 
and try to unravel for her why that happened, how that happened, and all those kinds of things. And then at the end of the uh, day, you know, my general, my reason was is that, and I thought about this from a criminal lawyer's point of view because that's what primarily I was doing, was that it was criminal negligence on the part of the neurologist who assessed her husband, and he didn't know what he was doing. And uh, and then, of course, my partner said, well, if that's criminal negligence, then it would certainly be civil negligence, and there would probably be a malpractice case there. And I, of course, knew nothing about malpractice, uh, but I soon learned and put it together, and then just one thing started happening after another in terms of cases coming to me. That first case, by the way, we, we ended up getting a $3 million verdict that got reported in the press, and then you know how that goes. Well, Skip, it's easy to think about the medical professional's role in this, but are there others who, who may be negligent in failing to uh, look for or respond to signs of, of depression or other psychiatric disorders that could could lead to uh, suicide? And I guess I'm thinking here specifically about people at a law firm, uh, em- whether the employers or partners or, or others. Well, although attorneys may have no medical legal requirements to intervene. In fact, I believe they do not uh, to intervene in the lives of potentially suicidal persons. Many feel an ethical, a humanitarian, and professional duty to take uh, considered and positive action when they encounter someone uh, who is suicidal. So um, the key is, is then knowing what to do once you've identified that issue. And um, uh, one of the things that that I always tell people is the question is often, will talking about suicide uh, cause a suicide? And the answer to that is no. Uh, that won't happen. There's a lot of good literature out there for the last 30 years that, that uh, back supports that notion. And so what is it that you look for? If you've heard someone say, you know, life isn't worth living, my family would be better off without me. The next time I take, I'll take enough pills to do the job right. Um, here, take my, uh, you know, my watch. I don't need this stuff anymore. I won't be taking up much more of your time. You know, if you hear that from uh, those kinds of words from clients, or maybe from a fellow lawyer, or anyone in the office, your ears need to be perking up. You know, if they say I can't deal with everything, life's too hard. Um, in a criminal context, if I have to go to jail or receive a criminal conviction, I'll be better off dead. I feel like there's no way out. You may hear that from a commercial client. You may hear that from any kind of a client that uh, all the lawyers that are listening to this can imagine. Uh, this is too much to handle. If you've observed people getting their affairs in order, like paying off debts, changing a will, you know, that's pretty normal in a lot of our practices, but, you know, you've got to couple that with other observations and what they're saying. Um, signs of planning a suicide, such as obtaining a weapon or writing a suicide note, is um, obviously a problem. Rage, anger, uh, seeking revenge, acting reckless, or engaging in real risky activities, some seemingly without thinking. You could take any one of these individual things and say, that's not going to be it. But when they're all coupled together, then you've got an issue that is working. Are lawyers more prone to uh, depression? Are you finding that there's a, are, are we as a uh, more stressed out and more overburdened and more worried about things than the general population? 
Well, the anecdotal evidence is out there for that, uh, and there have been some studies that talk about lawyers being more at risk for depression and those kinds of things, And uh, but it's all anecdotal. I've never seen a good study on, you know, lawyers are at more risk. Um, the issue is, uh, really, if you have a lawyer who has substance abuse issues or they're suffering from major depression or general anxiety disorder, if they have those that is a backdrop. We are all certainly in a uh, in a career where we worry about everything all, all the time. We're all constant worriers about deadlines, worried about our clients, worried about our staff. You know, so there's plenty to worry about out there. And uh, what we have to do is try to focus on on uh, good mental health and um, and trying to keep ourselves sane. And you know what I encourage lawyers to do is watch out for other lawyers, you know. And and by that I mean is if you see a fellow lawyer, whether they're on the other side, your side, doesn't matter what the side is, but they've got these kinds of issues, just let them know, you know, that that uh, you you do care about them, and that um, and you take their problems seriously. Uh, so what do you do if you suspect someone is considering a suicidal act? First, take it seriously. If someone starts talking about suicide, you need to take it seriously. Uh, about 70% of people who, who uh, suicide give some warning of their intentions to a friend or a family member or a colleague. And, and then you need to be willing to listen. Even if professional help is needed, your, uh, your client or your uh, fellow lawyer will be more willing to seek help if you have listened and then given them advice on where to go. That's the first thing to do is, you know, is uh, acknowledge it. And then um, what do you do if you suspect um, they're considering suicide or talking about it? Then you show care. Uh, you voice your concern. You take the initiative to talk about what's troubling your loved one, your friend, or your client. You attempt to overcome any reluctance on their part to talk about it. Uh, and then you um, finally... Uh, get them off into treatment if you can. And what you want to do in that situation, I've been a part of the uh, group effort in Washington, D.C. on the national hotline. And so they're very qualified people. It's now run by the, it's what's called SAMHSA. It's a government organization uh, that has is sponsoring and putting together the 800 number. And so that 800 number is very important. Let me give it to you. It's 800 Two seven three eight two five five eight hundred two seven three eight two five five, and these folks uh, can be very helpful if you call yourself and say what should I do or recommend a loved one or someone to give them a call. The other thing you can do is, if it looks like something's imminent, is to try to take them to the ER or call nine eleven. So. Putting that into an acronym, it's acknowledge, care, and treatment. You just think of the word act, and that kind of gets you there. I know that you have to get into a meeting, and we're at about the end of this segment. Before we leave you, we wanted to do two things. One is to invite you to give our listeners a way to follow up with you if you'd like, to, if they'd like to do that, whether email or website or whatever. And also, if you just have any any final closing thoughts you want to share before you sign off, we welcome you to do that as well. So, well, there's a a good book out that's called Suicide Lawyers Exposing lethal secrets. 
and that can be found on the internet. Um, and it's a author who interviewed uh, me and uh, another partner at the time on things like this. Uh, if anyone wanted to email me, um, my email or email address is ssimpson at skipsimpson.com. And my website is skipsimpson.com. I've really thought all these things through, haven't I? Very good. Well, Skip, we really appreciate your taking the time to uh, step out of your meeting and be with us today. Uh, when we return in a moment, we'll be joined by Peter Zoichhauser from the Zoichhauser Group and take a look at some of the longer-term changes in law practice from the reception. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Right from the beginning, you know, I knew I was important. Can you say that about the insurance agency helping to protect your legal practice? Lawyers like Rebecca Brody are confident working with the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, knowing they have the best professional liability insurance coverage for the best possible price. It is about customer service. I think that's what we like to promote in our business. You know, we did have some kind of specialty questions. We did have some concerns. It was really great, and it really felt like if I'm that well taken care of, it made it possible for me to go and take care of, you know, take care of my business and take care of my clients. Give us a call at 800-336-5422 or visit our website at landy.com. That's L-A-N-D-Y dot com. 60 years of experience. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. In this segment, we'll be discussing how the current economic situation will result in long-term changes in the way that we practice law. And joining us for this segment of the program is Peter Zoighauser, principal of the Zoighauser Group. Peter is widely regarded as one of the legal industry's premier strategists, a broadly skilled consultant and speaker. Peter specializes in law firm mergers, firm-wide strategic business planning, and devising strategies for increasing revenues and profitability and strengthening firm values and culture. Peter launched his consulting practice in 1995. He works with top-ranked global law firms, corporate law departments, and corporations doing business in the legal sector. Welcome to the program, Peter Zoighauser. Thank you. Uh, Peter, uh, let's just start with your uh, broad thoughts on what uh, the, the lasting effects of this recession will be on some of the clients you work with and on the, and on the profession in general. Well, I think there are six or seven uh, long-term changes that are in play as a result of the recession. Uh, first one, to run through them quickly, um, I think leverage will be, be, will be built differently in law firms, principally through outsourcing as opposed through uh, a lot of uh, permanently employed associates. The second, I think, is a recognition that the uh, generational look or uh, evolution towards non-equity partners uh, will likely be recognized as a failed uh, experiment. Third, um, I think we'll see more meritocracy in uh, compensation systems and more competency-based compensation systems, particularly 
or associates, partner comp better aligned with, uh, with firm uh, strategic goals is the fourth one. The fifth one, uh, a, a move towards more alternative fees, win-win fee structures. Sixth, more segmentation in the market, forcing more firms to figure out uh, clearly what position they want to occupy in the market. And then finally, a shift away from Europe and more towards Asia in international expansion. Well, let's go through those in a little bit more detail. And, uh, you know, one of the things uh, we, we've been hearing about is for years is that law firms are, are built on this kind of a, a, a pyramid structure that's a, a bottom-heavy structure with a, with a lot of associates at the bottom uh, doing a lot of the grunt work. Uh, are, are you saying that that's, that's going to change or is that already changing? I think it's already changing and, and that the recession uh, downturn in the economy will accelerate the change. Associates are too expensive. Law firms have to figure out a way to deliver greater value to their clients for less money. Uh, and I think that that's going to be done through outsourcing. Contract attorneys uh, on the, uh, is the big umbrella. But uh, more likely, I think you're going to see uh, significant outsourcing of the grunt work to uh, Asia, uh, India in particular, uh, uh, in order to reduce co- costs significantly. That will also make associate careers more rewarding. Uh, they will be doing less of the grunt work, and uh, that, I think, will make the practice more attractive to young attorneys. And uh, for both those reasons, I think we'll see outsourcing uh, on a much more prevalent basis. You talked about uh, generational evolution. What do you mean by that? Well, what I really uh, was speaking about there was the, the, uh, what's been going on for about 25 years, which is the emergence among the vast majority of the AMLAW 200 firms of a second-tier uh, partnership structure uh, with non-equity partners in the second tier. And I think that uh, after 25 years of uh, trying to make that work, most firms have come to the conclusion that uh, it's a failed experiment, and uh, we'll see that phased out as a result of the recession. Uh, why? Uh, number one, a lot of salary creep in the non-equity tier. Uh, it turns out to get that it's more and more expensive every year. Uh, second, it blocks opportunities to get the good work down to associates, again, making the practice much less attractive to them, high associate turnover. Um, and third, as the non-equities advance in their career, uh, with no uh, skin in the game, they tend to be less productive. So uh, expensive overhead, not as much uh, billable time out of them, less uh, good training opportunities for young associates all, I think, add up to a failed uh, experiment. If the current structures are going to be evolving, uh, does that suggest, uh, well, what does that suggest about the future of the of the mega firm? And, and what does it suggest, if anything, about the future of uh, midsize and, and boutique firms? Well, I think it suggests for all of them that the competitive, you know, pressure uh, in the marketplace is only going to increase and they're going to have to, partners are going to have to find uh ways to make the business profitable uh, different from what they've uh, uh, done in the past. And uh, it's, it's not going to be easy. I think the mega firms will continue to thrive. They just will have more contract people working for them. They will outsource more work, but, but uh, as they are able to drive their costs down, their profitability 
uh, will go up. They'll continue to attract top talent and, and a lot of very good work. Um, as, as they uh, become more global, I think they will op- open up a vacuum behind them for the national and, uh, and regional firms uh, who will enjoy a strong future in this as long as they can also uh, evolve their models to drive costs down and at the same time increase their, their margins. Are there good uh, sources in India and Asia to outsource right now? My experience has been that um, they, they're a little sketchy. Well, the, I think the key word there is good. <laughs> Are there good sources? I think they're emerging. You know, both General Electric and Microsoft have uh, outsourced a substantial amount of their patent prosecution work to uh, India with great success. Uh, there is, uh, I think, a fair amount of medical records processing going on in the big, uh, big medical or big pharma uh, uh, products liability litigation, the medical records being reviewed uh, in India. And, uh, and I think that those experiments have generally been successful. Uh, quality control will clearly be a significant issue as more work is outsourced there. Uh, but uh, there's no reason to believe that it can't be accomplished based on what uh, GE and Microsoft have done so far in the patent prosecution area. So it, it, it's, it, it, it's going to take work and vigilance, I think, on the part of firms who go there. But uh, I think in the end, uh, it's quite feasible. Well, I guess what I, I find myself wondering and, and what, what I was uh, somewhat getting at with my earlier question was whether some of that, that uh, outsourcing, if, if that's the right word, isn't necessarily going to be going overseas, but but to other firms, but to perhaps smaller and, and more specialized firms, and that uh, that components of of either the the litigation process or even in, in some transactional work will be kind of broken up and 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 taken to different firms uh, with different core specialties. I think that's a good point, and I think clearly there will be some of that going on, especially early in the evolution. Not all of the work that will or needs to be outsourced. Uh, will be done in India, and I think you're right. Some of it will be done here by uh, firms that have lower cost models, either because of their um, location uh, uh, in, a, in a less expensive market or because they choose to office in less expensive space within a market or because they, they build a model with lower cost people. And, and then there's a tremendous amount of outsourcing that can be done in the U.S. There's a lot of contract attorney uh, uh, outfits out there who uh, already have uh, soaked up a lot of this work and will continue to soak up more work. So I, I don't mean to imply that it, it's all going to flood to India uh, immediately. I think it will take time and there, there will be a fair amount of it done in the U.S. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the major firms have contract attorneys on their staff they, that are not on partnership track, uh, McDermott, um, uh, Covington, Howry, you know, just to name a few, have significant uh, contract attorney uh, programs that are with people who are employed by their firms, but not on partnership track and make less money. You mentioned that one of the considerations for the future is going to be meritocracy, but hasn't that almost always been a factor in uh, partnership and, and attorney compensation? Well, I think the, at the partner level, uh, compensation has been more merit-based, uh, but there are refinements that, uh, that uh, remain 
uh, to be had. Um, at the associate level, I think it's been principally lockstep with some small bonus component that is typically based on hours. Uh, it's not based on, you know, uh, associates move up through a lockstep one year at a time, their pay goes up, their billing rate goes up. I think where the change will come is you'll see more bands instead of first, second, third, fifth, sixth, seventh year associates, you might see three or four bands and associates grouped in those bands based on um, how hard they work, but also based on uh, their level of competency and what kind of work they can do. And they will move up and down through the bands, uh, you know, depending on where, how much of the time they want to devote to their career, uh, whether they want to take time off for a family or to take care of a, a fa- uh, to raise a family or to take care of a family member, but also based on how quickly they learn their skills. And you'll see the compensation being determined much more uh, along those lines than based on how many years out of law school they are. At the partner level, I think there's, while there has been more merit-based compensation, in most firms there is still a belief that partner comp is uh, driven in large part by the size or volume of business that a partner has and not by the margins on that business, how profitable it is. And I think that's where the real work is to be done in most partner comp uh, models. We've also heard a lot about alternative fees and alternative fee structures. Um, It seems not to have really taken root so far. When do you think it will start to take root? Well, I wrote my first uh, article on the death of the billable hour in 1985, and I predicted its imminent demise. Uh, It hasn't happened yet. Um, I think it's getting more traction uh, I, it used to be that uh, clients would say they were interested, but but their law firms didn't want to do it, and law firms would say they were interested, but their clients didn't want to do it. And I hear a lot less of that these days, and people really are sitting down and rolling up their sleeves. And, you know, when you get someone like Evan Chesler, the chairman of Cravath, saying that he's going to put an end to the billable hour at Cravath, uh, that's uh, more traction and I have had conversations with chairman of other big firms, some in New York. One in New York uh, told me that he thought um, 40% of their litigation would be off the hourly rate not, and on flat fee within uh, two years. That was about a year ago. And he, they were already substantially down that path. Shook Hardy has uh, you know, is, is, is moved to that model. So I think there really is more of it going on. But I don't think the billable hour is going to die. It is going to be around for a long time and will underlie uh, most of the alternative fee arrangements as a, as a benchmark or uh, a basis for determining what, what the win-win fee agreement should be uh, for a long time and, and, and will, will uh, be used uh, in abundance for many matters, even as alternative fees become fee structures become more prevalent. Is there any danger that as clients push for uh, economies, whether through outsourcing or uh, other fee structures, that they are effectively shooting themselves in the foot? I mean, just because the the clients are pushing for it, are they necessarily a good idea for law firms to adopt all of these changes? I think so. In the end, uh, we may be in a period today where there is... uh, more capacity than there is work for the big law firms, and thus we're seeing declines in profitability and layoffs. 
But in the long haul, uh, the world's financial assets are going to continue to grow. Uh, the demand for U.S.-style law uh, in, in a uh, law that flourishes, uh, the pra- a practice that flourishes um, in a appropriately appropriately regulated free market economy, I think, will be robust over the long haul. Um, but globalization is going to require. American businesses, including law firms, to be more competitive. Law firms are going to have to drive their costs down and find a way to make to increase their margins in order to attract talent and retain talent. And so I think the forces of the marketplace are inexorable, and the changes that it, they that you know that those force, forces bring about are are good for everyone. Drive costs down, increase margins. Uh, that is you know what the American economy has to be founded on, and law firms have to learn how to do that. We, we just about have reached the end of our show, and it's time to get your final thoughts and your contact information. But as you wrap up, I'm interested if we could shift for a moment to um, 2009 and 2010, probably not being good years for uh, law school students to be graduating from law school and trying to find jobs, and what you might think in terms of uh, – what law schools should be doing their last year, perhaps in the training mode. I noticed that uh, you're here in, in uh, Irvine, where I am, and uh, the new UCI Law School has made some strong statements about uh, the shift that it's going to do in the legal education. And Just get your thoughts about that. I wouldn't be surprised to see the U.S. move closer to a Canadian model or a British model where first-year graduates are paid a lot less money and spend a year uh, more or less in an internship. Some of that might be done in conjunction with some forward-thinking law schools as part of the, you know, third-year clinical programs, uh, and that might uh, might merge into their first year of practice as a, a way to uh, absorb more of those lawyers into the practice in a difficult economy, uh, and uh, uh, a, a way to provide real-life practical training, kind of a clinic, but in a major law firm as opposed to uh, a public defender's office or, or a legal aid society or some pro bono environmental group. I, could, I, I think that uh, it's very possible that we'll see some uh, movement in that direction. Well, if you could uh, wrap up with your final thoughts about our topic this morning and give us your contact information so our listeners can reach you. I would just say I think I don't think we're going to see fundamental changes in the in the model. I think law firms uh, have to create sustainable practices, and the way to do that is to provide a uh, a promise a promising and rewarding career for young lawyers who want to work hard and achieve the benefits of partnership by serving clients and helping clients serve their solve their problems. I think that that basic model uh, is sustainable, and what we're going to see is some some uh, fine tuning of it and and some changes in the way people pay for it. But overall, I think uh, we have a robust market for uh, legal services. In we will have a robust market for legal services in the future, and, um, and the market will come back, and 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 practices will flourish at all uh, levels of the market. I believe that pretty strongly. We had a good run for 17 years. We're probably going to have a weak uh, period of a couple, three years, 
But I think in the end, there will be great demand for American-style law. I can be uh, reached at Zoikhauser at consultzg.com, and my phone number is 949-760-6800, and I appreciate the opportunity uh, to speak with both of you this morning. Well, Peter, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciated your taking the time and uh, really appreciated your insightful comments about the future of the legal profession. Uh, that does it for today's Lawyer to Lawyer. I'd like to thank, again, both of our guests and uh, remind our listeners that they can find all of our shows, this one and uh, our archive of shows, at thelegaltalknetwork.com. And also you can find Legal Talk Network on iTunes as well. And we'll be back again next week to discuss a great legal topic. We'll see you then, Bob. Good to talk to you, Craig. Look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.